Welcome to the Catholic Cafe, where all that the Catholic Church believes and teaches is served fresh daily. So come on in and see what's on the menu today. Now, here's your host, Deacon Jeff Drzymski. Greetings and welcome to the Catholic Cafe's luxurious corner booth. I'm Deacon Jeff sitting here in the beautiful French Catholic Cafe in Lourdes, France on pilgrimage. And we are so blessed, Robert, we're joined again by Abbot Placid Solari. Exactly. And I'm excited, Deacon Jeff, because there's always lots of questions I've always wanted to know about. Yeah, we're going to call the show Ask the Abbot. Exactly. Like, you know, I mean, just, I remember as a child watching those movies with the monasteries and everyone chanting and, you know, it just sort of, uh, it's just a different life. I mean, I've never actually been, have you ever been to a monastery? I have been and it's beautiful, especially Solemn Vespers is what a lot of people will go to. That's usually their experience to go to a retreat and if they happen to be there on Sunday evening and they, it's just so beautiful. Okay. It's so beautiful. So, um, Abbott? Thank you for joining us here in the uh, luxurious corner booth. Thank you for the invitation here to the cafe. And we're going to get you to chant a little bit later on. But before <laughs> we do that, we, first, you know, I'm going to start with a, with a basic question. What is an abbot? An abbot generally is the elected head of a community of uh, monks or, or, with pronounced attentions, canons. Uh, canons regular, but I'll, I can only speak of it from the point of view of the monastic the Benedictines in particular. Right. So the elected head of a community of monks. So you're elected by the other monks? Elected by the, by the community itself, out of, generally from the community. And your real job is to lead the community and it's living, living its life according, in our case, to the rule of St. Benedict today, at this time. To now what's the derivation of that word, abbot? A father, simply means right. father. And which the does an abbot make? A, is it kind of like a bishop, or uh, and do you make the rules like what the bedtime is? And what, I mean, what, what, what do you? I just always wonder what's your day like as an abbot. Uh, well, the day, the day is pretty much like anyone else in the monastery in the sense that it's the day is constructed around the liturgy of the hours, the times for prayers, conventual mass, and then meals in common. And then between those times, everyone has his own work assignment. I have the sort of administrative assignments or teaching assignments, perhaps. And also, since our monastery sponsors a college, although I'm not an administrator in the college, I'm by office the chancellor, so I have to be concerned with affairs of the college, its mission and identity, its fundraising, its alumni relations, right. and also interacting with the college community as a whole. And how do you all support yourselves? I mean, is, it, do y'all, is the college the way the community supports itself, or do you... I don't think uh, any school or college uh, is ever a source of revenue. Uh, it's rather <laughs> a drain on revenue, as in our case. Or do you all make those fruit cakes? No, we, those te- or we do students. No. So, okay. uh, the monks who work in the college are compensated the same as a layperson, although the Abbott signs their contract because we give up personal ownership. Uh, but we support ourselves some way through work, also through investments, um, through gifts that have come to the monastery, and also in our case through property development. Oh. Now, historically, but monasteries have always been self-supportive, right? I mean, yeah, I'm just about fruitcakes, but don't right. they make foods and wines? Ideally, and you're supposed to work for your living, as St. Benedict sees manual labor in particular as a value. Uh, so the monasteries were supposed to 
in some way provide for their own own needs and then have something left over to provide for, for those less fortunate. When, when did all of this start? When did monasteries, the whole concept of monasticism, when did, when did that get its start? In Christianity, it emerges in various places roughly around the 3rd century, so the 200s. And in the 4th century in particular, it was seen as sort of the... It was the only way, really, for... Were you just a young life. monk at that That's time? That's right. I don't quite remember. I was just growing up then. <laughs> and then, of course, in, in Western Christianity, St. Benedict's rule came to the fore from about the beginning of the ninth century on, although he wrote it in the 6th. Although life, according to St. Benedict's rule, was itself, from that ninth century on, Influenced by currents coming from sort of other tr- monastic traditions. We should stop and what is St. Benedict's rule? St. Benedict simply wrote a, his rule. It's a uh, sort of handbook as to how in his monastery you were to live the, the gospel. Uh, so it's a, on the one hand a theoretical document, that is it lays down its theory as to why you live this way and that's pretty much most of its more practical arrangements for uh, concerning prayer, concerning correction. So uh, if the Benedictines have a, a, a rule, is it typical for other monastic communities to have a rule? Most monastic, not all, but most monastic communities in, in the Roman Catholic Church follow some version of St. Benedict's rule. Ah. Other apostolic communities, whether the Franciscans, Dominicans, and so, Jesuits have their own own rules. So religious communities will have a rule they follow. And that's just a, how you pattern your life when you Fun, pray. Sort of fundamental, uh, fundamental theory of laying down, I guess you would say, the basic spirituality or practices of whatever the religious institute is. Well, how would your life as a monk be different than, say, most people know who their parish priest is, and you know, the parish priest is celebrating mass and then visiting the sick in the hospitals and going to meetings and preparing people for marriage and doing funerals. What, how is your life different as a monk than, say, a, a parish priest that people would know? Well, first of all, not all monks are priests. Oh, okay. Uh, because monasticism, and, and again, in the Western Church and the Catholic Church became clericalized in about the 7th and 8th centuries, but originally it was a lay movement, by really? and large. Hmm. Um, and with the reforms growing out of Perfecte Caritatis, the decree of the Second Vatican Council on Religious Life, when you're in, the religious communities were encouraged to go back to their spirit of their founder, um, it is now possible to take solemn vows without going on to ordination. They're two distinct vocations mm-hmm. which can be put together, but are in themselves distinct. So that's the first thing. Not all monks are priests. So how many priests in your abbey are, are there? About probably, half? Or? Probably about two-thirds okay. are priests. Now, part of that, because the older monks who entered would have entered at a time when the solemn vows and major orders were put required together, together put together. Uh, since that has been separated now, a greater number are not pursuing orders simply because they don't feel that's their vocation. Monastic life really has its end, as St. Benedict says, to seek God. So you're to do that by living, praying, and working in the same community for a lifetime. So there's no defined work as such other than monks pray. Uh, But you have to support yourself. So 
for the past roughly millennium and a half, different monasteries have undertaken different works. Yeah, I heard they made like beer and foods and, and just different uh, over time. Is that true or is that? Well, it's, be, it's become sort of a commodity to sell for self-support now, but it obviously originally mm-hmm. it was simply providing for the sustenance of the community. Uh, in addition to praying, we have to eat as well. So. Now, a, a lot of people might look and think, well, they've heard of this. They've seen, you know, they've seen, they've seen cartoons and movies, and so they have a sense of what a monk might be. Well, I'm not sure, because I think sometimes the, the presentations in, in the movies and so are uh, rather far removed from well, reality. I was going to say that maybe the better way to phrase it is most of us have an, uh, an idea of what it is to be a monk right. based on the, the guy with the, in, with the tonsure right. you know, mm-hmm. chanting uh, in, in a right. dark right. hallway right. and right. walking and, and I know that still others might see the whole monastic system as being either outdated outmoded or maybe even insignificant in, in our day and age but I think a lot of people don't realize just what a profound effect the monks in the monasteries had on our culture over this this long history. They certainly have in, in Western culture, and sometimes as a sort of byproduct or perhaps almost an unintended consequence of the real focal point of monastic life and seeking God, have contributed greatly to the development and the preservation of real treasures of Western culture. But as I said, the, the, the purpose of monastic life really is to, is to seek God, and you have as St. Benedict says in his rule, a variety of characters in the monastery. So oftentimes the stereotypes, I think, as you said, that people garner from right. whether it's cartoons or portrayals in movies or so are not quite what you, what you actually experience in the monastery. Often. But what are some of these things, that these treasures, these things that, that people have maybe today that might not have had? I mean, because when it comes to things like cultural things, like libraries and books right. and... There were some rough times in the Middle Ages. Well, certainly the Bible would be one. Right. uh, Because we have it because it was preserved, copied largely, although not exclusively, obviously, in monastic scriptoria, but also works particularly of Latin, but also Greek translated into Latin uh, works of the classical period. Uh, in fact, isn't a lot of that preserved precisely like a lot of the works of Aristotle and a lot of those ancients? Well, Aristotle Aristotle came in really... uh, through the Arabs back into about the, the 12th century, if I'm not mistaken. But certainly translated works, Plato, um, the letters of Cicero, the Aeneid, things such as this would have been, and uh, some of the Latin poetry, even some of the, the poetry, which would, we would see as risque, was copied right. simply because of a respect for tradition as a source of, of knowledge and of truth. A respect for the written word. Again, that was based really on the Bible as the written word. Um, But that's why I said it was a sort of unintended byproduct of beauty and truth being things that lead us towards God that came out of this monastic life and came down came down to us today. And we wouldn't have those writings today if the, mo- the monasteries had not preserved them and protected them and copied them and recopied them over right. the ages because there were no printing presses at that right. time. Also, I guess you could say to some extent developments in agriculture, uh, even in medicine. Um, yeah, Mendel was a monk, uh, wasn't he? He was a fra- uh, Augustinian canon. Okay. But I mean, these things, when there was no other learning around, uh, the 
you had a, a stable community which could pass on its its knowledge and traditions. Well, you you mentioned stable, and there were a lot of tumultuous times with with warring factions and all kinds of stuff going on in communities where things were. I don't know, crumbling, where we, we see a pretty stable environment, theoretically, what we're living in now. But uh, yeah. didn't the monasteries offer some, some stability for a region? They could, although they too suffered from, for example, any of the, the monasteries in the British Isles or in, in modern-day France, which were any way reachable by the rivers. The, the Vikings, of course, would periodically come and, and raid. Uh, but the monastery, because it did have, the, off the monks would go back and refound, but they did provide a certain stability and a certain network of stability uh, across Western Europe. Very good. So we have more to talk about. We're going to have more to ask the abbot, and we'll do that in just a minute. I want to remind folks at home they have a great website, www.thecatholiccafe.com. And also I'd love for you to email me, tell me what's going on, and uh, ask any questions you want to ask about our Catholic faith or what show topics you might want to have. And uh, we'll try to listen to those and uh, answer those and uh, do that at deaconjeff at thecatholiccafe.com. And so with that, we will be right back. I'm Bess Trzemski, and this is another great moment in church history. Since the earliest days of the church, Mary, the mother of Jesus, has been a shining example of perfect Christianity and inspiration to believers throughout the world. After the course of her life here on earth was completed, Mary was assumed body and soul into heaven. For nearly two millennia now, she has demonstrated her intense motherly love for us all and her willingness to intercede to Christ on our behalf, offering comfort to those plagued by pain and sorrow. Take the case of a young African girl born in the Darfur region of southern Sudan in the early 1800s. We don't know her real name because she was bought and sold so many times that even she did not know her true identity. Her Muslim captors, who kidnapped her at age seven, named her Bakita. After many torturous years in slavery, marked by hard labor, unspeakable brutality, and even human branding, Bakita ended up in the hands of an Italian gentleman in the Sudan, who took her back, as a slave, to Italy. She served as a house mother to a girl who was being taught by nuns. As she interacted with the sisters and followed along with the child's schoolwork, she felt drawn to the Catholic faith. She found hope in the teachings of the church, but as importantly, aid and comfort in the protective love of the Blessed Mother. Just a few years later, the Italian courts freed her. For the first time since age seven and after so many masters, the only master she would now serve was God. Bikita entered the Institute of St. Magdalene of Canosa, where she made her profession three years later. She took the name Josephine Bikita. She loved her faith, and she flourished as a religious sister. She once said, Be good, love the Lord, pray for those who do not know Him. What a great grace it is to know God. Josephine always had a beautiful smile on her face, but inwardly she struggled with the scars of her captivity. On her deathbed, after so many dark and painful years as a slave, she started to let the chains of her memories drag her down. She pleaded with Mary for assistance. As she neared death, 
a great peace came over her, and she called out her final words, Our Lady, Our Lady. Her ensuing smile gave testimony that Mary did not abandon her in her final hour and would indeed lead her to the loving arms of her Savior. I'm Bess Trzymski, and this is another great moment in church history. Welcome back to the Catholic Cafe. Here's Deacon Jeff. And we're back in the luxurious French Catholic Cafe's corner booth. And we're so happy to be here with Abbot Placid Solari from Belmont Abbey in North Carolina. Uh, Abbot, thanks for spending the time with us. We really appreciate it. We're learning a lot Thank about you for the invite. monasticism and uh, just what an abbot is. We These are all great things. And we're going to continue in, in, that, in that realm. We're going to talk a little bit about the prayer life. Uh, obviously, prayer is central to what you do. We've talked about the fact that there are works and there are things that you do and labor, uh, and there's there's glory and beauty and worship in, in, in that. How does prayer fit into to what you guys do? That's what usually what people are known, that know about you. Right. Remember, the monasteries weren't founded to do anything. They are founded, again, to provide a place for men and women who follow St. Benedict's rule as well to seek God. And therefore, prayer is what we do. How much time do y'all spend a day, a day in prayer? We would. The, this is your chance to say like twenty hours. That's right. A day. Yeah, no. <laughs> the um, liturgy of the hours would probably take up hour and three quarters, plus the conventual mass, which will vary in length depending on the feast day. Right. So, so but look, we should for those listening might think, what are, are the liturgy of the hours? I know many people do know, but tell us a little bit about the liturgy of the hours. People may know it more familiarly as the divine office, or so that is the the church's liturgy of basically prayer, psalms, biblical or patristic readings primarily, which try to carry out the injunction of the New Testament to pray always by setting particular times of the day, which go back to the earliest times of the church, right. really, uh, to stop and to pray. It's bound for uh, priests and deacons are bound to this at their ordination to pray on behalf of the church. Religious also take this on. But do just religious do this? Do just the, the ordained do this? It, uh, initially, the morning and evening prayer would have been the practice of the Christian community, um, what we'd call the parish community. It's pretty much been the work, if you want to call it that, of the ordained clergy as well as of religious up until perhaps more recent times when the Liturgy of the Hours is becoming something that's become known again to to the laity and is right. a form of prayer. And we know that that word, we don't get into Greek all the time here, but liturgia, from where we mm-hmm. get liturgy, mm-hmm. we, is, is like works or public work mm-hmm. uh, of the church. Work and so service, the liturgy right. of the hours would be the public prayer, the public well, work a, of the church. It's a, it's a liturgy of the church. It's not a, yeah. it's not a private devotion or a devotional. Abbot, is this where the Gregorian chant, is that what you sing? When, or do you, well, first of all, do you all still do Gregorian chant? And what what is that? Is that praying the liturgy Well, the Gregorian chant is the, sort of the... The plain song or the musical melodic modulations for singing primarily the psalmody with its antiphons or hymns, the mass settings, and so So it's a type of singing. Um, primarily, strictly speaking, it would, it would refer to, to the Latin text and the way of singing them that's been handed down. Most of our Liturgy of the Hours is in English with an adapted Melody. Do you all sing the Liturgy of the Hours? We sing our evening prayer every day, 
at Lodz, we sing the, the Benedictus, the Gospel Canticle, uh, at vigils, the responsories on feast days. So, so we have some singing. More often we'll recite the psalms. Well, you know, I remember specifically going on retreat one time in an abbey, and it was on a Sunday evening, so they were going to do mm-hmm. evening vespers, and it was just absolutely captivating. It was just beautiful. And that, for me, was like just the first time I'd really experienced monastic life yeah. in a way that I'm, I know that I'm not a monk and not called to be a monk, but to be able to be there in that environment, that was that was quite liberating. It was quite beautiful. That's probably one of the first things that attracted me to monastic life as a as a boy and then as a teenager to attend Vespers at, at Belmont Abbey. And I was overwhelmed with the sense of peace as the monks sang the the Vespers. It has a real soothing um, sound to it. It's not really a rhythm. It yeah, just the sort of sound goes up connected there. probably with the, the text. And so right. I was just, and I'm sure I didn't know. All I remember is that it was an overwhelming sense of peace uh, as, a, again, a somewhat young boy and then as a teenager having that experience, and that attracted me, one of the things, to the monastery. That was beautiful. And I, uh, another image I remember specifically was that we uh, joined him for morning prayer, and at you know 5.59 a.m., there was not a single person in there, but at, at 5.59 and 59 <laughs> seconds, all of a sudden, everybody, all these all these monks had suddenly shown up and were, were in their place and all ready to, to do their uh, morning prayers. It was beautiful. Well, it's a nice way to begin your day. I mean, how would people's day be different if the first things they said was, Oh, Lord, open my lips and my mouth will proclaim your praise, and to spend the first minutes of speaking, speaking to one another the inspired words of the scriptures. Now, a lot of people might not also realize that there's a, there are a lot of differences in all these different communities and, and religious life. It's not just you either choose the diocesan life and to be in a religious order and that that's just one or the other. But within that concept of religious life, there are so many different communities and, and varieties. Right, it's there. not a sort of generic religious. Um, you've got so many different traditions and families, and I guess you can roughly divide Catholic religious orders into apostolic, which are the more numerous and probably better known, the Franciscans, the Dominicans, the Sisters of Mercy, right. um, the Jesuits, and so. Um, and then the monastic groups, the Cistercians, the Benedictines, the Carthusians. Um, I use the image of space, that is, the, the apostolic communities are usually provincially organized, and the religious go out within that province, which can include in the United States, the eastern half of the United right. States, for example, and wherever they exercise their particular ministry, whether it's health care or teaching or pastoral ministry, will move around from place to place within that province and change their the members of their community they live with the place. Monastic groups, the space is the abbey, where we actually take a vow of stability to the community, and we're to live there and to stay there and that we invite people into that space for a longer or shorter time. So maybe that's the best way to right. conceptualize that difference. Do you all have silence? I mean, you hear all the jokes about the monks not speaking. I mean, what role is, is silence in the community? How quiet is it in the monastery? We think it's noisy. Most guests tell us how quiet it is. But again, that's simply what you become used to. Uh, St. Benedict has a chapter on silence, and silence is always a value. Uh, because it would be difficult to have a real atmosphere of prayer with a lot of noise, whether that noise be external or internal. 
so there are times and places of silence, and there's a general appreciation for that. Silence can always be ambiguous. We can give somebody the silent treatment, mm-hmm. so right. we can use it wrongly, but it is also something that's a prerequisite for the first rule of Saint ben- first word of St. Benedict's rule, listen, so that one can obey. I think also a lot of people have problems you know, in the modern culture with silence. It's interesting. People don't like being by themselves. Think about mass. Quiet. You know, mm-hmm. people want to fill in everything Every, with a little ditty of music, mm-hmm. a little something to mm-hmm. help the priest mm-hmm. walk from here to there and don't want them to walk in silence. And, and this idea of, of having some kind of silent reflection, maybe after receiving Holy Communion mm-hmm. or something, is just unheard of. Mm-hmm. Now we've got to have... Uh, have a something song, playing, right? right. Yeah, to cultivate a real rich, good, healthy silence is difficult. Well, so here's another obvious question that we want to ask. Does, does the abbot have a boss? Um, well, people ask, who do you report to every day? Do you report to the bishop? And we're not a diocesan ministry, so right. no, I report to Jesus every day. Amen. But for the Benedictines, since about the end of the 19th century, have been organized internationally into a Benedictine Confederation, which is about 20 congregations. Each abbey is quasi-autonomous because you join a community and stay with that community. But generally, we work on a reporting level, if you want right. to call it that, congregationally, the monasteries that belong to a similar congregation. So in our particular group, we'll meet every three years for a general chapter. There's a president elected of the congregation that has some of the authority of a major superior granted by canon law. Some of the responsibilities stay with the individual abbots. And every four or five years or so, each monastery has a visitation, which a team of uh, monks from another community do a self-study on your life. It's kind of like a quality control audit to make sure the life is... It sounds like a little bit of accountability and just... That's it. It's Transparency to let everybody see what's going on in it. That makes sense. Now, do you have to die in your position? Do you retire? How does that work? That will be determined by the constitutions of each of those 20 congregations of monasteries I mentioned. In our particular group, uh, the abbots retire at age 75. Okay, good. Others will have an So you've got another 20 to 30 years, years. obviously, of good, faithful service. (laughs) Well, fewer than that. (laughs) Well, let's sort of close out with this this question. A lot of people wonder, is monasticism still relevant? In our society, does it does it have an effect, or is it just some sort of cast off living on an island or in some uh, bizarre place that we don't we visit every once in a while, but we don't know that they do anything there? Well, oftentimes I think people evaluate monks by what we do. For example, we sponsor Belmont Abbey College. Uh, that's important, but it really is something that flows out of that primary commitment to seek God by life of prayer. And if monastic life is an intentional faith commitment. If we believe that prayer, which is a very mysterious reality of our faith, is important, then monasteries are important Mm -hmm. because they raise the question of the primacy of seeking God that everyone ought to do in his or her own way. That makes sense. Well, Abbot Placid Solardi, thank you so much for helping us understand more about monasticism and, and just what an abbot is and does. And we appreciate you taking the time here in Lourdes and your busy schedule to share with us. Thank you for the invitation to join you. Would you mind closing us in prayer? Father, we ask you to send continually upon us and upon all your church the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that we may do all things in accord with your will, for your glory, for our salvation, and for the welfare of your sons and daughters, our brothers and sisters. And we ask this through Christ, our risen Lord. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to The Catholic Cafe. If you'd like to contact Deacon Jeff, send an email to 
Deacon Jeff at thecatholiccafe.com. The Catholic Cafe is brought to you by the Order of Malta Federal Association and is broadcast with ecclesial permission from J. Terry Stein, Bishop of Memphis in Tennessee. Join us again at the Catholic Cafe. There's always room for one more at our table.